Hey, good uh, afternoon, Hans. Hi, David. How are you? Good. I was just uh, reading your uh, uh, your interest uh, from your your LinkedIn page, uh, and uh, <laughs> I have to say, your Doc Doc Octo- Octavius was really cool. <laughs> yep. Thanks. I I was took a bit of work, but it was fun, and it made my kids' Spider Man outfits uh, seem more convincing. So. Yeah, and I also noticed that, you know, just kind of going along that Doc Octavius, uh, Octavius, I can't even say his name right, Uh, (laughs) the fusion, uh, nuclear fusion, I thought that was interesting with uh, tritium, he's using tritium to build the nuclear (laughs) fusion. I am am no fusion expert, but I'm more of a science nerd, I suppose, or uh, fusion enthusiast. Are you a, a high energy, high pla- hot plasma, three hundred million degree fusion, or do you are you uh, do you do like Tomac, or, or are you looking at like laser fusion? I was more uh, fascinated by the work MIT is doing in their small reactor stuff as opposed to the okay. extremely huge and extremely expensive. Is it ITAR or the the European one? Right. Yeah, that's the high energy one. Uh, yeah, that's a. And it's interesting because MIT uh, uh, said that Tomac didn't think that the electromagnetic fields were, uh, there's some question of when you get that high energy plasma and that uncertainty principle, electrons can get outside the electromagnetic field. So um, there was some question whether or not that even be, you know, could they achieve uh, net positive. Mm -hmm. But the MIT one, I think you're referring to, uh, is uh, that that um, uh, let's see that that one I think uses lasers, and then creates a confinement filled with lasers and pulses. With lasers, interesting. Okay. Yeah, there's some cool. really interesting stuff in fusion. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe for another time, right? We can yeah. Talk more yeah. About the, but I, I actually did a little uh, reading on that and. Uh, one of the big problems with fusion was is you have that confinement field and you've got to build up the basically build up the plasma and get that plasma contained in a in a, a small space with no mm-hmm. leakage and that's the problem is a lot yeah. of times you have that leakage and uh, and then that causes the net sum uh, problem so if you could if you could if they could get the design such that the geometry works electromagnetic fields and then they can create kind of like a sink where they can create high pressure and high temperature uh by kind of reflecting uh the the electrons back into that center then they can create uh theoretically fusion mm-hmm. i've seen some cases where they've done some pulse things where they've shot you know like taken a 128 lasers and pointed at it I think it was at tritium and uh, and created uh, like a billionth of a second energy pulses of plasma. And then, uh, you know, then try to capture that energy and convert that into mm-hmm. you know, like steam or something to create uh, electricity. But anyway, right. that's kind of interesting. I don't usually find people that are interested in fusion. So getting a chance to kind of talk about that. Was yeah. <laughs> I think you know more than I do. But yep. Yeah. Yeah, there's actually there's actually quite a few different varieties of fusion. Uh, there's one that that is uh, kind of pop popular that the Navy use, which is 
they build a, a, a fusion reactor from the Wiffle 8. It's a Buckley ball and uh, the Wiffle 8 geometry. Uh, they created an electrostatic sink. And <laughs> as a result of that, they were able to create high energy plasma in just like this really small space. Um, wow. So it's kind of cool. And then they, they continued to lead the efforts and Google's actually got interested in it. So Google uh, did some TED talks on it and, mm. uh, and then the Navy, but the Navy actually uh, maintains that patent and that technology. So if it was going to probably develop fusion, it'll probably be the Navy. Yep. <laughs> well, I wanted to talk about you. Uh, uh, you wanted Tell about some of your your work that you're doing with robotics and 3D printing. Sure, yeah. Let me give you a bit of a background on me. I graduated from the University of Idaho. Oh gosh, I don't know, ten years ago, something like that. Um, did a master's in autonomous forest navigation, and then um, directly unrelated to that, I got a job at HP down here in Boise, uh, working on laser jet printers. And through that, I got, invo- I got involved more and more with the R&D process and building test robots to test the printers. And obviously, 3D printing is an excellent resource for that. So about four years ago, I got hired to start an R&D lab here in Boise for Bastion Solutions, which is a, a material handling systems integrator. And what we're, what we're doing here is building robots that'll um, improve the supply chain and help the world run smoother. And we do heavily leverage 3D printing in what we do. Yeah, I noticed that you. Uh, what you said was uh, you build a universal robotic gripper with additive parts, flexible materials, and it says shark fin mm-hmm. fingers. Is that something that you designed or was that something you saw and then utilized um saw and utilized but we've we've adapted it it's actually i think it's a scandinavian professor who which then festo took over the they they made a gripper uh, with small fingers with the shark fin principle where the finger bends towards if you push on it it bends towards you instead of away from you kind of like a fish fin and it's and we we've adapted that principle into into our grippers to, to just to really to grasp, to wrap around something. It's much easier to handle goods with a flexible finger with a, with a soft finger than it is with a, a rigid finger. Harder to control the position, but it's more forgiving of air. Um, so do you use, uh, you're, you're probably using some sort of object recognition where uh, the, the robot recognizes the object and then it can uh, reposition. Uh, it says five degrees of freedom, so it has some aspect of movement. The robot arm then uh, can then grasp the object, move it, mm-hmm. and so forth, manipulate the object. Yeah. So it's it's really um, I, I'm trying to think of what I can talk about and what I can't share because I'm an okay, R&D. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but um, the the problem is is interesting, and in, in many companies are working on replacing human picking of orders and groceries instead of someone walking the aisles with a blue blue carts picking up stuff that you ordered the trend is increasingly more towards um, that process being fully automated and what we're what we're doing is is you know one of the is is using the our ai system to recognize 
objects and command the robot arm to go pick them in and in, in a certain way. Um, that's that's incredible. And, and is it? Uh, I was just trying to visualize. Are these uh, small systems, like in the size of, you know, like uh, something where you're moving things from uh, uh, off a, of assembly line into a box? Or are we talking about bigger things like where you're taking sheet metal, have some sort of suction that's picking it up, uh, repositioning, maybe even having lasers that are cutting, molding, bending, you know, uh, doing something? Or, or are you just mainly taking things from a warehouse, uh, moving it onto a crate, having some U, UAV move that from mm -hmm. its cell over to an assembly line? Then picking it up and moving it onto the assembly line. Yeah, it, it's actually uh, um, a lot of Bastion's focus is less on the manufacturing and more on distribution because um, barring a new Tesla or <clears throat> a new um, aviation company, there's, there's not a huge amount of growth in actual, <clears throat> excuse me, um, assembly lines in, in actual big large-scale production and when you do have your large-scale production like ford or or something somebody else that investment's made for a long period of time but instead what is growing really is the 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 retail e-commerce distribution centers micro dcs like all those you have your autonomous robots and your automated tasks and your ai pushing down into that kind of that more smaller business and uh, consumer space. Not really consumer and home, but in the items that consumers order. Yeah, so it's like a, uh, where you have, I've seen those where they have like the hundreds or maybe thousands of small uh, robots that look like, almost like your vacuum cleaner, but they, uh, they can go, they're positioned, they can move out into a space. Uh, they, then there's some sort of cell that it knows how to pull items from that cell, put it into a box or into a stack, and then those robots move it, you know, yep. for packaging and ready to distribute. Yep, those, those are the problems we're working on, and there's there's so many different ways to approach that. Um, you can you can do what um, Kiva does, where you have your kind of flat floor bot that goes and picks up a shelf and brings it to the operator. Or you can have an automated um, structure where your, they call them shuttles, run into it or on top of it and then go pull bins and bring it to a person. And uh, what, we're, what we're focused on doing, I can uh, speak about this because we, we demoed at a trade show two years ago. Um, we're focused on, instead of bringing a, a bin down to a person to retrieve an item, we are picking autonomously in the racking with the, with oh. with the vehicle, so you when the vehicle comes out, it's got the completed order, and you don't need yeah, that human better. picking an engagement. Yeah, that's almost better because then you could have you could uh, have a complex order, and the robot then would move from bin to bin, uh, pulling items from those bins and then returning back with a complete order uh, ready for distribution. Exactly. How do you avoid though collision? I mean, do you have robots that kind of, is it kind of like a navigation problem? You've got hundreds of robots moving around and they have to kind of courteously, you know, avoid collision. 
Yeah, we that that is a challenge. I guess there's a couple of ways to solve that. For if it's a floor AGV, it's more of a a, a local navigation problem, and also then your air traffic controller. We use our our um, Bastion Software Solutions kind of a coordinator, a warehouse management system to make sure the bots aren't aren't in the same places if they don't need to be. But then, in addition to that, you have your local obstacle avoidance. Um, but then in 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 the racking, like in in a storage, uh, highly automated storage space, there it's more of a problem of coordination. Uh, and then you okay. and then you may have you might have a sensor for like an emergency shutdown if you get too close to to a different vehicle. So does it, the, your scheduling software says uh, kind of runs it in a uh, is a semi real time scheduling. Yep. Uh, that it figures out. Uh, which which uh, vehicles can proceed, and so you might have some vehicles sitting in bay waiting for their turn. Correct, and then so if, everything doesn't go out at the same time. Right, and if somebody takes longer than than anticipated, then you can adjust the plan on the fly. Wow, uh, you know, it's almost like a. Have you ever thought about how this is similar to transportation in a city planning, like you know the future? where you're having, you know, you don't have, you don't have autonomous moving vehicles like buses, you know, that are running autonomously. Uh, but you, you do still have kind of that a, a scheduling problem because there's congestion and, you know, you have to, so you, what do you spend time watching flow and seeing how, you know, where things are might be bottlenecking and trying to expand that? I, I, it's hard for me to speak to that. Um, I'm more on the okay. mechanical side. I, oh, okay. I, I am yeah, the, the 3D printing guy and the, the mechanical designer. And okay. I, I definitely do interface with the other teams in, in the requirements and the design and functionality. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, we just had a podcast uh, with Slant 3D. I did oh, yeah. a podcast yesterday with them. Uh, they were talking about some of the barriers to 3D pr printing. Uh, you know, mainly uh, the big one was uh, vendor. You know, you're, you're now a new vendor supplier with a, this incredible uh, catalog, but you could say maybe of digital designs that can be printed. Mm -hmm. And then how do, how do you overcome that traditional mindset of, you know, I want to go down to get my part. I don't want it to be fabricated at, on demand. But at the same time, I want to have the part and, and put it in my inventory and then it sits there until I need it mm -hmm. you know, versus an on-demand approach where, you know, you know, you're going to have higher demand. You place your order, you fabricate it and get the parts out to them. It, it, it definitely is a, a problem. I, I, I honestly would have expected 3D printing to take off faster than it has. I, I think it's been a combination of issues. Just one, as, as I'm sure Slant mentioned, is, is mindset of changing the, the mindset from, from a, a long supply chain and storage to more of an on-demand. But honestly, another one is, is cost. Uh, I think a lot of people have tried to pit 3D printing cost, you know, functionality against functionality, and then just compare the cost. But in reality, to get the full benefit, you need to go design into areas that traditional manufacturing can't do or has a hard time doing effectively and then 3d printing is a clear winner yeah that's one thing that was brought up is 
you know, when you when you do it traditionally, you have to have your press, you have you have to mm-hmm. have dies, you have to have your big machines for your injection molding. And, you know, it's not really flexible. So if you make a mistake, uh, you you may have to, you know, spend a lot of money to replace the parts to get the, you know, the final product where digitally you could simulate it, you could look at it, you could, uh, you know, through CAD CAM, maybe even see how it fits with the other parts. And then you make adjustments digitally and then print it, you know, and then print it. And so you're, risk are mm-hmm. greatly reduced. You know, our, our motto here in, at, a, at our, in our lab is fail fast, fail forward. And, and we've, we've definitely done that a ton with 3D printing. Sometimes it's, it's far easier to just get something out there, try it, break it, reprint it, than it is to try to get it, the design completely right. Um, we've we designed our, our robotic arm with 3D printed big joints. Um, you know, and, and traditionally, those on, on smaller robotic arms, those are cast aluminum. On lar- larger arms, they're cast steel. But but because ours are 3D printed nylon, we can change the geometry and scale up or down and uh, tailor it to fit an application. Especially since we're not we're well, not a high really volume. Yeah. Um, so, are you do you do 3D printing in polymers, or do you do three? 3D printing in some sort of alloy, um, in plastic polymers primarily. I for our application, um, metal 3D printing is not quite there yet. So, so is what you were talking about the robotic arm uh, being aluminum or cast steel? Uh, are you saying that the nylon version of that part uh, is comparable in strength? Um. No, but it doesn't have to be. Okay. So it doesn't have to be in a more expensive alloy. Um, and that then you can reduce the cost and you can then adjust the shape and form of that, of that joint. Exactly. As Okay. That's really cool. Innovation. And then that lets us like, if we have an, if we have a new vehicle that we want to put a robotic arm on, instead of having something strong, large and heavy, we can, scale down what we have and lightweight it for size it for the load. Okay. Uh, I noticed you, you in your LinkedIn, you said you also had a couple of patents. Are those patents that uh, you helped design while you're in college or? Uh, uh, no, those, those are, just something yeah, that... those are our ones we got um, here at Bastion a couple of years ago, just through the, Defining, I think one of them's a gripper. One of them's, uh, we call it a scissor lift. It's a component of our overall shuttle system. What What does it do? What does the scissor lift do? Um, I, I don't is think it I kind can. Kind of like I, a, you're expandable or something. Yeah, I, it, it's part of the vehicle that helps it reach things, but yeah. I, I don't think I can go too much into that. Okay. Yeah, the, we'll, we'll avoid that. I was going to go back to your uh, that shark fin mm-hmm. finger. Uh, have you seen the robots where they can add? It's a it's a polymer, and when they add electricity, it has a, a kind of a piezoelectric effect. It it uh, can deform shape, and it's uh, they're using it uh, in robot uh, hands. You know, to show that you can have a soft touch versus. Uh, 
kind of an actuator mechanical gear approach with pulleys. It's having more kind of a soft deformation based on a current. Have you seen those? Uh, in, um, I don't know if I have. I, I've seen some, but I don't know if they're using it in a robotic hand. That's really interesting. Yeah, this one, they were kind of like, they were kind of showing that uh, uh, usually what you see is like the air robotics where they have some sort of pulley system. And then, they, you know, it can simulate, you know, high degree of freedom mm -hmm. with the hand opening and closing. Uh, and usually that's done with lots of uh, uh, pulleys and, and mm -hmm. things. But this one was actually showing where you add current and it had kind of a contraction Interesting feature. I was yeah. watching a. Yeah, I thought that was. I was watching. Um, I think it was a Harvard uh, video of of their prosthetic arm for amputees, and and they had the guy go in there and they put electrodes on his stump, and then they told him to open his fingers, you know, even though he doesn't have any, and he would his in his mind he ran through all these scenarios, and then they hooked him up to the the prosthetic arm, and he's he was actually able to catch a tennis ball, which is, you know, with with the fingers moving open and closed, wow. it's just mind blowing. Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting. Uh, uh, that you know, usually what that in the past what they've done is it, it hasn't been a directly brain code translation to electronics. You know, there hasn't been a, a a neuron bridge. You know, between the electrical to an artificial neuron to some sort of translator that can do things. You know, uh, in the past it's been like if the person flexed their muscle, you know, right where their arm had been. Uh, amputated then from the flexing mm -hmm. of like the bicep or something then it would open and close the hand you know here this they're just thinking about it as if and then it, it recognizes the electrical impulses that might have been that, that's what it looked like it looks like they were trying to tap into the yeah. nerves in the or read the nerves in the stump it's it was pretty interesting yeah yeah and then, then maybe using uh so are you an AI guy? Or I, I am an AI enthusiast, um, although I don't do any personally. I've, I've been a, you know, trying to keep tabs on what our team's doing here and just what the industry is doing in general. One of the cool things there is, is um, you know, as you, as you know, data is, is king. And if you have a huge data set, you can train a really intelligent algorithm. And, and one thing that's, that's blown my mind is, one of the best ways to get that data is to or in a, in a gaming engine and then vary the texture and lighting. And all of a sudden you have thousands and thousands of permutations you can train on. Yeah. What, and what do you think you could do? With well, that? for in, in our, in, in our case and in other companies cases, you know, you can recognize things you're looking for. Now, if you're looking for, for a product, now you know what it looks like without having to have, uh, a huge amount of real-world data. You know that's interesting because I was just re I read an article by George Hinton. He was a guy that kind of uh, did, he was the one that made popular again the Bozeman. Uh, they, uh, there's the Bozeman machine, and then there, I think it's a R Bozeman machine. Uh, but it's it uh, is kind of like a, the beginning of deep learning. It was actually when he he did the contest for mm -hmm. ImageNet, he won his team won it. Uh, I think <clears throat> the percentage of, for object recognition went above seventy four percent, 
and and it was his architecture with Bozeman machines that kind of set the foundation for this new deep learning. And he claims that, just like you were saying, that almost everything should be possible with the deep learning. Right. Um, but yet he had to have, even if with the image recognition, the ImageNet, I tried it, <clears throat> just the, the smaller version, uh, not mm -hmm. a million version million image version but the smaller version and it was still 50 meg to download wow. forever and uh yeah i was huge and uh and then when i i ran it it recognized apples it recognized orange when it but when i put them in a composite uh apple orange and you know like mm -hmm. a banana together images um it didn't do as well do you have those kind of problems when you're on the oh yeah where <laughs> Not quite getting it so right. you so you can <clears throat> well so one, one way of approaching the problem is if like if you if you render an apple and then you vary the lighting vary the texture vary the color now you've just created a whole bunch of different data and then you can start messing with the background and clutter you can start throwing in clutter into your into your your unreal image. And then, and then, and then annotate where the apple is, and then keep running it until it's able it's able to filter out the the background, and then identify the the object correctly. Yeah, uh, have you heard about GANs? G A N N. I I have not. That works. It's kind of you kind of remind me of that because what what it does is it uses simulation or it uses. Uh, a, uh, another population data population and so one network can actually learn from another in a kind of an adversarial uh, environment <laughs> and and so it, it 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 the simulation it tries to determine uh, conditions that does it identify it does it not identify uh, and then through kind of this uh, uh, interaction between the two environments uh, the learning goes up. So then, when you're when you present it to a real world input, it uh, it does performs fairly mm -hmm. well. Uh, one one that they're doing is like with art, for example, Adobe I think is doing this where the one person has a he draws an object uh, kind of like uh, just like you would do an etch a sketch where you just draw your lines, and then on the other side, the GAN network is saying. Oh, I kind of recognize that. That looks kind of like a stream. And so it puts an image of a stream there. It looks like a tree. Mm -hmm. It looks like a rock. Uh, and so it kind of uh, has this collective learning, you know. And, Interesting. Uh, but you, it sounds like what you do is you use the known data, data sets of objects, and then you just apply that. And then uh, the neural net does pretty well. It recognizes it. it and so. Yes. Um, yep. Do you find that yeah. just just curious speaking on a more general level, do you find that that um, in popular opinion the AI is misunderstood as actual intelligence as opposed to pattern recognition? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, definitely I'm a narrow AI guy. Um, I you know the the generalized AI really is something that I think is probably an antithesis, right? Uh, because if you go to generalize AI, uh, then people get really scared, and you know they think that the everything is going to fall into chaos. But it it can't 
the narrow AI is difficult as enough mm-hmm. to get to work, you know, and to actually interpret and understand what the narrow AI is doing. Uh, I can't even imagine building these pipelines or even uh, having machines building pipelines uh, that are not understandable. That would be that would be something I don't think people would want to do in business because you'd have this. I guess you could just say, well, it's a black box. If it works, we keep it. If it doesn't, you just you're... <laughs> But at what point do you shut it down? Uh, how far do you let it go before you? Especially if it kind of go works ahead. like, yeah. So you have this you have this huge investment in this generalized system that that's very hard to understand and maintain, uh, but yet it performs, let's say, at 60 percent. So at 50 percent, you would say, well, we need to get something better. But at 60 percent, since you've got a 10 percent margin, you may be willing to tolerate it. Then if someone came along and said, well, we can get you to 70 percent, then maybe you would look at the cost benefit and the add the return on investment and figure out, you know, length of time before you could mm-hmm. make that move. That's just my thinking. So, but yeah, I think in general, in general uh, terms, generalized AI is probably severely misunderstood and it's, and at best what most companies are looking at right now is narrow AI. It's tailored for the application. Um, yes. Yes. Just because of the risk, you know, and, and the comfort levels have to, you be know, I think it high. goes to show with, with robotics automation and, and, you know, AI automation that really the skills that young people should be developing should be creative and thinking and skills that are not repetitive. Uh, if you're, if you're doing the same thing day after day and it never changes, then it's only a matter of time before that gets automated. Yeah, I think that that's true. I mean, there's so many cases where uh, automation has replaced things that we did traditionally. Like, I'm sure that in college you you did logarithms, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm doing logarithms now to uh, do some of my uh, analytic predictive uh, predictive analytics. But how many college students, when you actually ask, ask them, do you do a do you know what a log base ten is? Do you know what a natural log is? Do you know why you use logarithms to do calculations? I think I think they would get totally lost in what you're talking about. Not that they would be dumb, but they wouldn't have a, a frame of mm-hmm. reference. So there, there's some, uh, again, there's some things. And, and you look at the future of the careers, the type of things that, you, you know, you're going to hire people for. They're going to have to have, uh, they're going to have to be do, moving away from kind of like the traditional calculus differential equations engineering type of stuff into maybe some crossover between electrical engineering uh robotics and ai you know so there's going to be a yeah and i was even even thinking more along the the manual um things where you where you know the flip the flip burger sit all day and pick out defects from an assembly line type of 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 thing yeah i think those those uh you can almost see that they're they're staging it. McDonald's has a, a lot of automation that's starting to come in right now. You got kiosks out front. Mm-hmm. You know how hard would it be to have a kiosk? You put your order in, and then uh, you have a set set of uh, robotic arms behind the scene that are doing all the cooking yep. assembly. You know, and then to have a person deliver it to you. Yeah, you, I, you know. So. Go ahead. 
Well, uh, our time's about up. I just want to just like to give you, you know, any closing thoughts that you would like to share. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm honestly really, I'm excited for the future of, of robotics and technology. I, I don't see it as something that's taking jobs, but rather something as that's giving us additional tools to go out and win and succeed and taking dangerous and repetitive jobs away and replacing them with, with more creative and people interfacing ones. Well, uh, thanks for coming on and uh, sharing your ideas. I, I enjoyed this conversation and, uh, you know, if we want to, if you want to talk about <laughs> fusion in the future, I'd sure I'd like to have you come back and we could talk about uh, there is some really cool stuff with uh, Crossfire. I don't know if you've heard, seen that one. The uh, embryo audio. I will have to look it up. Uh, I can't yeah, but look at that Crossfire reactor. I think it it may have come out of MIT, uh, but that one also was interesting. They're using lasers and and. Uh, uh, to create the pressure and temperature. And it, it's interesting because uh, you would almost think that science doesn't understand fusion because it, it's like they have a general assumption mm-hmm. of what fusion is, but since it's ne- never gone net positive, it means that they must not really understand all the aspects of fusion. It hasn't gone net positive yet? So, Okay. Not that wow. I'm aware of. Yeah. Even at, at every and that and that's one of the uh, one of the challenges that they are saying is well maybe if we could just uh, get the pulse to last longer the fusion pulse to last longer then the uh, the predicted outcome would exceed the income and it would go then net positive but as far as I know there is mm-hmm. no system yet that has gone net positive that's commercial I might they might have the net positive in. Right. In prototype, yep. but not in commercial. Well, thanks. Yeah. Thank you for right. having well, me. Well, thanks a lot. Huh? Take care. Okay.